This week, as we've said a couple times now, is the third and final Sunday that we'll be doing Advent worship, as well as our series uh, on the clock for Christ or Christmas. And we're going to get into that content in just a moment, but it also is about time for my quarterly report on Team Grinder's house project, right? So um, uh, this last couple of days, you could tell I'm coming out of like a head cold thing, which actually worked out well the week before, the week before Christmas, so hopefully we'll knock that out. But my dad, he's uh, in the hat in the back, and a friend Troy came, and we did some electrical work because we're in the demo phase of our kitchen, Okay. So uh, on the left side of that photo with the, like the old linoleum floor, that's what was the kitchen. The right side was the dining room. The dining room's moving back to the front part of the house, and then where we put the addition on, uh, that will be the living room. And so we took down the wall between them. Now we're in demo and electrical phase, and so we are excited to be hopefully in the final phase of the interior work. But lest you be concerned that nothing is done, uh, this is our new master bedroom. So I didn't approve these pictures with Sarah beforehand, but I think she'll be okay, right? So um, that's where uh, Sarah and I, our room is. Uh, apparently, uh, wallpaper is back in style these days, so Sarah's done a lot of research on this. So on the Sunday after Thanksgiving, we did some wallpaper behind where the, the headboard goes, and in that little sitting area, you can see on the left, that's where the dormer is in the front of our house. And then we also uh, were able to finish Ava's bathroom. So super important, high school-aged daughter has a bathroom that she can use. She doesn't have to use ours. So we got to do a little touch-up painting in there, but otherwise, it is good to go. Uh, also, over Thanksgiving week, we did a quick refresh of our basement area as well. So uh, Sarah and friends did a bunch of painting, this kind of blue, moody color. I'm learning all these terms, by the way. Uh, and, uh, and we got some new flooring, thanks to the Couts family and OHI. Uh, they helped provide some new uh, uh, kind of luxury vinyl plank. I think this one's called like bootlegger speakeasy style or something like that. Which, uh, okay, it is what it is. But um, uh, so we are, uh, we are kind of moved back into our bedrooms upstairs. Our basement is kind of a, uh, a finished landing zone area while we push through the final phase. So uh, next quarter, I hopefully will be able to report back to you some finished kitchen, living room area uh, with cabinets and a fireplace. So uh, God is good and we're thankful for that. So, okay, yeah. Appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Uh, so we are, we are pumped about that. God is good. So uh, this week, we're going to finish our three-week, or not finish, actually. We're going to continue our, three, our series on uh, 1 Thessalonians. Our final sermon will be on Christmas Day as part of our Christmas Eve, our, our part of our Christmas celebrations. But today, we're going to take a look at a part of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 that's one of my favorites and, and a part of the letter that I actually get to teach on and preach on the most, especially at funerals, because we're going to talk about what happens to us after we die and what kind of hope and promise does God give to us for what is to come. And uh, in our big idea question, maybe you shared some uh, travel misadventures. We're going to talk about traveling today. And one of the ones that came to my mind for Team Griner was going back to when Sarah and I lived in Colorado, and uh, I was on my internship or vicarage year. And uh, at the end of that year, we took this whole uh, group of high school and college-age students uh, to Denmark. And it was an awesome mission trip. We were working with Youth for Christ. Uh, we were doing a, um, a week-long church retreat camp where we were helping set up tents, and I built a bridge and a water slide. That was super cool. And uh, we got to hang out with middle schoolers from Denmark for a full week, and that was awesome. Um, this was in the summer of 2005. <clears throat> Sarah and I had been married just a couple years. It was our third anniversary right after this trip. 
And um, uh, it was in that era, maybe you guys remember this, where you could book your travel online, but you still relied on paper tickets when you got to the airport. You guys remember that time? Right? So it was in that kind of like in-between of digital and analog travel planning. And, and that's significant because we got to Denmark. We had a fantastic, it was like two weeks that we were there. And then at the end of our time in Denmark, we spent a day in Copenhagen. I'll never forget because it was Sarah's birthday. And like I said, we were married just for a couple years. And so I was unaware of how gifts were supposed to work in uh, birthday time zones. So I assumed that she assumed I wouldn't pack a present like to go to Denmark for two weeks for her birthday. So uh, that was a little bit of an issue. But, um, but we, we, we got to the airport. Do uh, you remember that? Right? We got to the airport only to discover that the flight that we were planning to get on had already left. Right? Because our, our youth leader, Sumi, we love Sumi. She was fantastic. She was using the emailed itinerary for the whole group uh, that had flight information that was outdated. And Air France had changed their flight schedule, uh, and we didn't realize it. But on our printed tickets, if we had looked at them, we would have seen the actual date and time of the flight we were supposed to be getting on to fly all of these friends home. Instead, uh, what we discovered was the flight had already taken off, and so with all of these teenagers, Sarah and I had to figure out with the uh, young adult leaders and Sumi, uh, our youth leader, how to fly standby from Copenhagen to Paris on her birthday, from Paris to New York, and then catch a jet blue flight from New York to Denver. Right? Any of you ever flown standby before? Right? A few of you have. Uh, flying standby means you hang out at the airport the whole time hoping to get on the next flight. In our case, we also had to manage adult to uh, minor ratios, and we had to figure out how many flights had how many seats and whether we could get on them and get to our final destination. Didn't make for a great birthday, even though I took her to Paris, France. But um, uh, uh, we eventually did make it home, right? But flying standby is not necessarily the, the best way to travel. Today we're going to talk about a much more certain set of travel plans that God has given us as we take a look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and what it teaches about the day when Jesus returns and he brings to an end all that is wrong in this world and brings us into new and everlasting life. Okay? So we're going to take a look at uh, our ticket to ride, to use the word of the Bengals, uh, the Beatles, uh, on the day that Jesus returns, according to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And so it begins like this. Paul says, we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. So Paul's writing to the Thessalonians, and if you haven't been with us the last few weeks, this is a letter to a church that he planted in what is still the second largest city in Greece, Thessalonica, but he had to flee under the cover of night because of uh, people who were coming to try to persecute him uh, as a result of proclaiming the gospel. And so he's writing to them specifically uh, about those who have died believing in Jesus, waiting for Jesus' return. Okay, so let's keep going. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. So let's just stay here for just a moment. 
Uh, this phrase Paul uses, according to the Lord's own word, means that he is giving us direct teaching from Jesus that he himself had received. Um, Paul uh, previously had been an ardent Jew. Uh, he had been dead set against Jesus and against the Jesus movement. In fact, had gone out trying to track down Jews who had converted to Christianity, and he sought to have them publicly humiliated or even killed, including uh, one of the early evangelists, Stephen. Saul was responsible for presiding over his public execution. We're going to learn about that in just a moment. After that, however, Paul had a direct revelation from Jesus on the road to Damascus, and he was converted from being an enemy of the gospel to being one of its loudest uh, uh, proclaimers, uh, one of the greatest evangelists in the history of the world. Uh, but in order for Paul to move from being an enemy of the gospel to being sold out on Jesus, he had to spend some time one-on-one -on -one with Jesus himself, and that's what happened. So he says, this, what I'm about to tell you, I got exactly, directly, as I'm going to explain it to you, from Jesus himself. And he's talking about what happens to people when, when we, like everyone in the room today, we are alive, um, we still have breath in our bodies, right? We're still living, but we have loved ones who have died. Um, and for the Thessalonians, what they were concerned about was some confusion that had been brought to them by some false teaching that suggested to them that Jesus had already returned and they had missed out on it. And their loved ones, even more importantly, were not going to experience the resurrection of the dead, but they also had missed out on Jesus' return. Paul says, I want to clarify this for you with teaching directly from Jesus about what happens to us when we die and what will happen when Jesus returns, because he has not returned yet, as Paul is going to make clear. So he goes on to say this, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God. Maybe you remember, early on uh, in the book of Acts, or at the tail end of Luke's gospel, Maybe you remember how Jesus returned to heaven after his time here on earth, right? He gathered with his disciples on a mountaintop somewhere in modern-day Israel, and he literally ascended into heaven until he was hidden by a cloud. And then some angels said to the disciples, listen, don't stand around here looking up at the clouds. You've got work to do. Go make disciples who make disciples, because one day Jesus is going to come back, but you don't know when that will be. In fact, Jesus himself, during his earthly life, had said, the only one who knows the day and the hour when he will return is the Father in heaven. And so Jesus said, even I don't know that exact day uh, because I submit to my Father who is in heaven, the first person of the Trinity. So what Paul says here then is on that day, Jesus will return in exactly the same way that he ascended into heaven, but in reverse. He'll come down from the clouds. He'll be announced by the trumpet of God, the archangel Michael himself, we know his name, and he'll be surrounded by the saints and all those who have gone before him and the angels, okay? Now, one more thing before we keep going. Um, on that day, uh, when uh, Jesus returns, what we're told is some of those who have died, um, those who have fallen asleep, they will experience it too. Now, Paul used that word asleep a couple of times already. Where do you think he comes up with that? Well, let's take a look at this example here from uh, Matthew's gospel. Maybe you remember the story of Jairus and his daughter 
probably about 12 years old, who had uh, been very, very sick and then died while Jesus was on his way to heal her. Uh, When Jesus arrived there, Matthew tells us this is what happened. Jesus came to Jairus, the ruler's house, and saw the flute players in the crowd making a commotion, and he said, go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. Right? Jesus himself introduces this word to us as a way to refer to the death of those who know and believe in Jesus. He says of this girl, she is not dead, but she is asleep. Now, what happens right after this is people start laughing at him because they're like, we know what dead is, and she's obviously dead. But Jesus is like, I don't have time for you. I've got a mission from God. And listen, so he goes in and he raises her back to life. But this introduces for us this notion that Paul picks up on and develops that when believers die, that is to say, when our bodies seek to function on a biological level, right? Whether that's an end to brain activity or the last beat of our heart or breath in our lungs, you guys are familiar with at some point, our human bodies waste away, they get old, they get sick, they get broken somehow, and our bodies stop living. Jesus, and then the rest of the New Testament says, for believers, instead of calling that death, we can refer to that as almost like falling asleep. So here's one more example. I mentioned this before from Acts chapter 7. This is the death of Stephen, again, at the hands of Paul. Here's how Luke describes it. As they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Now, there's all sorts of teaching we could go into here. Like, for example, Stephen is saying exactly the same things that Jesus said when he died, right? Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Uh, do not hold their sins against them. Remember Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. Like I could go into a whole talk on just that alone, but I want to focus on this last part. Uh, He falls asleep. Now Luke, who's writing this, is a medical doctor, right? So he, he knows a thing or two about the end of life, but he picks up on what Jesus had said in Matthew's gospel and says, Stephen falls asleep because he has already invited God to receive his spirit. So what that tells us is that when we die, there is an immaterial side to our existence we call our spirit or our soul, right? It is not confined to or limited to a human body, although in our earthly life they are inseparable, and that's the way it should be. But at death, there is an unnatural tearing apart and separating of our spirit and our body, and our spirit goes to rest with Jesus, just like Stephen invited, while our body, Scripture tells us, falls asleep here on earth. That is, it ceases to function on a biological level. That is what we also would call earthly death. But remember this moment. Jesus, still alive, hanging on the cross, right? And and the thief next to him, one of the two, uh, who had repentance in his heart, says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And you can see, and maybe you remember what Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise, right? Paradise also uh, is a word in Greek and in Hebrew for a garden. So it's like going back to the beginning. You're going to be uh, back where everything started with God, with Jesus on a spiritual level. The, the, uh, the body of the thief certainly hung on a cross. His legs were broken. He was cast aside, buried somehow. But his spirit, Jesus promised, would be with God, with him himself, uh, on that very same day. So here's what that means if we put all this together. 
Scripture tells us clearly, when we die, our bodies cease to function, but our spirits live on. And they go to dwell with God, with the saints, those who have gone before us, with the angels, in the heavenly places where God is, until the day where Jesus comes to raise them again to new life. So let's move on to that part, part two. What are we looking forward to? The return of Jesus, as well as the resurrection of the dead. Here's what Paul says. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Now, keep in mind, the Thessalonians were concerned that their loved ones who were still dead had missed out on the return of Jesus. Remember, they were confused by some false teaching that was circulating at that time. What Paul wants to emphasize is those of us who may still be alive on the day when Jesus returns, right? Scripture tells us we don't know when that'll be, but just be ready. It could come at any time. Uh, Jesus says we're not going to have some sort of advantage over loved ones, family members, friends who have died already and whose bodies are already in the ground. They've already been uh, laid to rest and their spirits are with God in heaven. He says what will happen after Jesus returns is the dead in Christ will rise first. Now this promise of bodily resurrection has been a bedrock and foundation of biblical hope from the very beginning and all the way to the very end. So think, for example, you may know the verse from, Luke, or from Job chapter 19. He says, uh, in my flesh I shall see God. Right? You can write that in stone uh, with an iron pen. He says, I know that my Redeemer lives, and I'll see him in my own flesh. Um, the hope that the world has to offer is very different from that. So let me show you just a few examples. Some of you know the name Aristotle right? Important uh, Greek philosopher, uh, 3rd, 1st century BC. Uh, this is what he concluded. Death is the end of everything, right? Apart from the revealed will of God and God's Word, that's all we conclude is people, they're, they're born, they live, they die, and that's the end, right? And says death's the end of everything. And then you've got this French guy, Francois. I'm not going to try his last name because I'll probably make a mistake, right? But he lived about the same time as Martin Luther. We're not sure exactly when he was born, but around the same time. Uh, he was uh, an Enlightenment thinker, right? So a philosopher. He was the first great prose writer in French. All right, there we go. Um, he said this, I am going to the great perhaps. Right? So apart from trusting in the promise of God and God's word, that's all he could come up with. I'm going to something uncertain. Or Jean-Paul Sartre, uh, 20th century philosopher. Uh, Death removes all meaning from life. So again, absent the revealed word of God and his will as we find it in scripture, humanly speaking, this is the best we can come up with. This is all we have to hope for. Now contrast that with what Jesus himself says. This is the words of Jesus on the occasion of the death, the earthly death of one of his best friends, Lazarus. He says to Mary and Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Right? Jesus has this uncanny way of saying things like this, saying, listen, if you live and believe in me, you'll never actually die. And even if you experience earthly death, you fall asleep in Jesus, you're not actually dead because your spirit is an eternal thing that lives for forever. And so long as you put your hope and trust in me, you have this promise that you will experience resurrection on the last day unto eternal life in a world that is freed from sin 
and suffering from death and darkness and anything that goes along with it. That's Jesus' promise for all who put their trust in him. I am the resurrection and the life, Jesus says. Now that brings us to this next point. Uh, The rapture of all the living. Now this part has led to some confusion within Christians for, again, uh, hundreds, even thousands of years. Uh, What do we mean by this idea of the rapture of all the living? Some of you may have been around and paying attention a while ago at the series, the Left Behind series. Uh, It was a great Christian fiction. I would say not good theology, okay? And the basic idea behind it is this line of thought that says, uh, before Jesus returns, there will be a period of time where true believers are secretly whisked away, right? And uh, those who are left behind are going to have a hard time until the last day when Jesus returns, okay? Um, That is based in part on what Paul says next, but I'll make the case that Paul makes it actually abundantly clear, here's what's going to happen. After that, that is when Jesus returns, the dead are raised to new life. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Right? You remember how Jesus went up into heaven? We talked about this earlier. He's going to come back in the same way. And I don't know about you, but since I was a kid, I've always had this dream of being able to fly, right? Like levitate. I remember thinking about there's some power lines by my parents' house, like just being able to float up over top of them and how cool that would be, okay? Now, I can't tell you that in the new creation for forever, you'll be able to fly like Superman, but at least on one day, Scripture's really clear, you will. So what is the rapture of the church? It's not some secret event where people are whisked away. It is that moment where Jesus returns, the dead are raised, and they go to meet the Lord in the air, and we who might still be alive in that last day were transformed, and together with them we meet him in the clouds. So a very visible and public and obvious event, the day that we finally get to fly. And when we do, we meet, like we said, the Lord in the air, together with all the saints, all our loved ones, and the angels themselves. So here's where we're going to land the plane, right? Steve Erdman, some of you know Steve Erdman, he said today's the 120th anniversary of human flight. So there you go. Perfect timing for my flight-related thinking today. He says this, and so we will be with the Lord for forever, right? We will be with Christ in a perfect world, our bodies raised and perfected for forever, and with all the saints who have gone before us. And so what are we to do with this hope and this promise? He says, therefore, encourage each other with these words, right? This promise of God, this certain hope that we have in Jesus is given to us so that we might be certain and have hope for what is to come. So before we close and send you off today, uh, the kids are back, so you have some chance if you have uh, parents with kids to process some of this with them. We have two questions for you to consider. What part of this last day that I'm just describing uh, do you look forward to the most and why? And then secondly, uh, how does what Paul describes encourage you and how can it make a difference in how you live? Jason's going to bring up some music in the back for the next three, four minutes, give you a chance to rest on this, process this. If you're with someone, share what comes to mind, and then send you off with a blessing at 1025.